This event is presented by the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you, and welcome to the Council on Foreign Relations State and Local Officials webinar. I'm Irina Faskanis, Vice President of the National Program and Outreach at CFR. We are delighted to have participants from 46 U.S. states and territories with us for this conversation. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, today's discussion on Russia and the future of U.S. energy is on the record. CFR is an independent and nonpartisan membership organization, think tank, publisher, and educational institution focusing on U.S. foreign policy. Uh, CFR is also the publisher of Foreign Affairs Magazine. As always, CFR takes no institutional positions on matters of policy. Through our state and local officials initiative, CFR serves as a resource on international issues affecting the priorities and agendas of state and local governments by providing analysis on a wide range of policy topics. We are pleased to have with us today Amy Myers Jaffe. She is a research professor and the managing director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. She served as executive director for energy and sustainability at the University of California, Davis, and a senior advisor to the Office of the Chief Investment Officer of the University of California Regents. And she was formerly a senior fellow for energy and the environment and director of the program on energy security and climate change here at CFR. So welcome, Amy. Thanks for being with us to talk about this um, issue. We are looking at, uh, I think we're into the fifth week of Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, so I thought you could talk about the global energy market um, and um, the um, effect on the U.S. oil and gas supply uh, and how this is affecting our U.S. energy um, policy. Thank you very much, Irene. It's really a pleasure to be here and uh, very pleasure to be here with uh, your state and local official program, which I found to be one of the most productive uh, and successful programs at CFR. So really great to be back. Um, I want to start out by saying something that will sound partisan, but I'm going to be actually saying something that I think corrects dis and misinformation. So we have in the oil market and to a lesser extent in the natural gas market, a boom and bust cycle. Uh, if I have some local and state officials from my old state, Texas, um, you'll know what I mean. But a lot of us, you know, read the paper and we know, you know, it's like the sixth or seventh time in my lifetime, maybe more like three or four in some of your lifetimes that we've had an oil, an oil price shock um, that's affected Americans uh, and American consumers. And I want to describe what's happened in a slightly different way. Um, I know there's a lot of narrative that somehow we passed the Green New Deal and it's left us with an oil crisis. Um, but of course, we didn't pass the Green New Deal. Uh, none of that legislation that was proposed was actually passed. Um, there still is not a climate bill that passed uh, the Congress. And so you say, well, then what happened? Well, it was other policies. I'm like, no, it wasn't other policies. This is exactly what happened. We had a, from an oil perspective, we had a huge bust in 2020, which you can all remember because nobody needed any oil because we were all locked in our homes. And so the price of oil, you might even recall, uh, if you're not inside baseball, you might not remember this, but there was a day when the price of US crude oil went to negative $47. You hearing me correctly, it was not worth a dollar. It was not worth $2. People were literally having to pay to have the oil taken away. 
because there was so much of it. And that caused companies in the United States had to stop drilling because they'd run out of storage. Members of Congress from Texas and Louisiana had to call Saudi Arabia and tell them we're going to cut their arms sales and our arms exports to them if they let their other new cargoes that they didn't have space for come to the United States because it would have clogged up our system. We lent our strategic petroleum reserve caverns to Australia because they needed someplace to put their oil, right? So, so we had just too much oil and not enough demand. And then lucky for us, the vaccine worked in the sense that people lowered hospitalizations. We had a stimulus package. People got back to work. Oil demand went way back up, went up in other places too. You know, China got out of lockdown. They felt they had a good policy for getting people back to work. Economy was churning. Oil demand rose suddenly. But remember in 2020, everybody stopped drilling. So now we get to 2021 and oil demand snaps back up we have a shortage. So price starts creeping up. And in the middle of that price creeping up, that would have been a good time. Here in the United States, companies started drilling again. That would have been a good time for OPEC to have put more oil on the market to prevent the market from getting overheated. And guess what they did? They did the opposite. They cut and restrained production. And then that gave Vladimir Putin a moment where everybody was teetering on the brink of this very high oil and gas price to take action. And I'm not even talking about the, the war yet to just take action in markets. So uh, Russia just didn't provide extra natural gas into the markets in Europe. They, they owned the Gazprom, the state uh, natural gas monopoly, owned storage tanks in Europe, and they just didn't fill them. So we got to we're in the fall and you have extremely low inventory of natural gas in Germany because, of course, the Russians own the natural gas tanks and they didn't fill them. Um, and things got worse and worse over time. And indeed, things would be even worse. But for the fact that, number one, the U.S. companies started drilling more and we were able to sell uh, and ship more natural gas from our export terminals in the Gulf of Mexico. And then the president, in my opinion, wisely started releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, the president has an uphill battle on releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I mean, this is what it's for. Um, we are not at war in military men, but we are facing uh, other means to try to prevent Russia um, from uh, winning and, 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 and jeopardizing um, the stability of Europe. And some of those means are economic sanctions. And therefore, we're trying to ameliorate that with different policies, including using strategic stocks. The problem that you're seeing or you're going to see, number one, is that if I'm an American driver and we have, you know, 300 million to 350 million cars on the road in the United States, many of us are using our cars to visit family because we're not taking the train or doing other things that we used to do as frequently because of COVID. And so if every, so 
it, normally, everyone in the United States drives their car on average with half a tank. And figure, you know, the average car has 18 or 20 gallon tank. That means that for every car in America that's driving full, you're having an extra 10 gallons. It's 42 gallons to a barrel of oil. So, you know, we could do the math in our head, but basically some of the oil the president has released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is sitting in the tanks of people whose cars are on full. And so when you ask, well, you know, how come it's only brought down the price a little bit? How come it hasn't done it more? Well, you know, that's the explanation. So the president and, and yourselves as local officials, we do have some other tools. If it turns out that further sanctions need to be placed on Russia or there's going to be a larger disruption, I can talk to you a little bit about how much Russian oil I think is off the market. For sure, we've lost a about a million barrels a day, maybe a million and a half barrels a day, just because European countries don't want to buy it and they can't sell everything they want to sell. Um, so that is, you know, we already have a bit of a disruption, but you know, the disruption could get worse depending on how things progress. Um, and so we we do have tools that we we, you know, without being Jimmy Carter and putting a sweater on and saying Americans need to conserve energy, which is, I guess, an unpopular political statement. Um, we've all learned that major employers in particular cities can allow employees to take a few days a week to telecommute and not drive into work. We know that because we can telecommute, I'm very productive in the morning when I don't go to the office. Um, so we could have people driving to work at different times of day. Um, when we have everybody commute at the same time, believe it or not, we waste a half a million barrels a day of oil, uh, roughly, uh, just from congestion in cities. So we could eliminate that by staggering, either staggering commuting hours, or alternatively, we could have restrictions on delivery vans operating during rush hour. Now, you know, we have these things. I'm, I, I, you know, spent many years in New York City. We get times of day. You can't go a certain direction on a certain road. You can't use the bus lane. You can't make a right turn, right? So people are used to having certain restrictions during rush hour. We could have restrictions of deliveries to be not be made in the hour or hour and a half of rush hour. And that also would relieve congestion, which believe it or not, would greatly reduce oil use. So so there are things we could actually do. Um, I, I want to be sensitive to time because I really want to talk to you about what you're wondering about and what you're thinking about. So I just want to make an extra statement. Um, many of you might remember when Colonial Pipeline went down in a cyber attack. We're on high alert for Russia to make cyber attacks on US infrastructure. It's not correct to ask me how come it hasn't happened yet because actually there have been uh, extreme attempts um, to disrupt the operations of our largest natural gas producing companies and our big LNG export terminals that are competing with Russia. They've all had cyber intrusions since the invasion or even just prior to the invasion. So it's just that we've been um, vigilant but you know, one can never be vigilant enough um, with these multiple attempts at hacking. 
So one of the things I wanted to mention to you was that around the time of Colonial Pipeline, um, there were cyber attacks on various cities in Oklahoma. I think Tulsa was one of them. And they were trying to get, I think, to billing programs or other kinds of assets, tax records or whatever, that would help them pierce a, a cyber pathway, a computerized pathway to a major storage terminal in Cushing, Oklahoma. So different things around Cushing, Oklahoma got hacked, but luckily they, the hackers never got to Cushing, Oklahoma. But all of you need to be thinking about the systems that you have in state government and local government that connect to the offices of energy facilities or, um, or interact with uh, energy companies that pay their taxes, auto, you know, maybe auto, in an automated fashion or electronically. You want to be thinking about your electronic connections to energy infrastructure um, because that was a big problem with the colonial incident. Um, and then the other thing I just point out, um, which you'll, you know, is that there were passwords for the VPN, names and passwords for the VPN system of Colonial Pipeline's employees. I know that they, they've said publicly that they were circulating a week before the attack. I can tell you some of those names from what I understand from talking to people from industry were circulating for a year or more on the dark web. So I'm sure you all use cyber consultants. The question is, have you have you had them search the dark web for you to see if your if your names and passwords are are circulating? Uh, if you have them circulating, you obviously have to go to dual authentication to make sure that someone can't just use those passwords. There's a, they have to then you know send a message to someone's cell phone and the person has to respond before before you can enter the network. Um, but it would be a good time again to think about the security of, of, of different facilities and then also the electronic connections electronically to any energy facilities. So let me stop there and uh, uh, let me hear what's, what's on your mind and what you'd like to hear about. Fantastic, thank you, Amy. And let's go to all of you. We already have hands uh, raised. So when I call on you, please identify yourself. You can also um, write your question in the Q&A box. Um, and if you do that, please uh, identify yourself there um, so that we know who you are. Uh, let's see, Ronald Cope has written a question but has also raised uh, his hand. So why don't you go ahead and ask it yourself and please unmute yourself. So my question is, on the first day in office, President Biden revoked thousands of oil permits and the petroleum industry says they can produce much more oil. Can we be energy independent as we were two years ago? Okay, let's, let's, let's take that one apart, Ronald. That's a great question on everybody's mind. First of all, the oil industry, which I, you know, I lived in Houston 25 years, which I know intimately from my 25 years in Houston, uh, they're a shrewd bunch of executives. And in 2020, because they weren't sure what was gonna happen, they stockpiled, especially in New Mexico where their, their drilling was on federal lands, they stockpiled permits. And you know, people like the chairman of Devon Energy and EOG you know, reported to their shareholders at investor meetings that they had enough permits to last them through 2024. 
And if you don't believe me, you can go to the Associated Press and they'll give you the actual tally information. If you follow me on Twitter, it's on my Twitter feed, right? So permits are not the problem. Now, I have talked to the oil industry because it's possible, and, and your, your question uh, highlights the concern, which is we wanna make sure that the Biden administration isn't doing anything to prevent us from having the industry be able to gear up, especially if the United States were to wind up being in a much more involved in Europe's security. I don't know how to put that in a tactful way. So right now we're supporting the Ukraine, um, but you know there's diesel fuel shortages in Europe. It takes a lot of a lot of oil and oil to you know run a war. Um, hopefully we will not become militarily engaged, but we have to plan as if it could happen because we don't want to be caught uh, out of turn. So the question is, what can the industry do? And I've talked to the industry and I've talked to people in the Biden administration, and I do believe that there is a solution. Um, it's, it's a kind of a strange mix of things that happen in the global market. So if we needed more oil and the oil companies have certain budgets that they've already planned, we're gonna have an extra 900,000 barrels a day of oil being produced mostly in Texas, but around the country from our onshore production this year. And I asked the industry, could you do more? And if you wanted to do more, what would you need? And you know, different companies say different things. You've probably seen the explanations in the press. Nobody said leases, nobody needs leases. They said they needed the following thing. They might need the US government to prioritize access to steel to the oil industry. They might need the US government to prioritize certain chemicals to the oil industry. They would need to have a uh, gear up to have more skilled crews to do some of the work. That might be a little harder. Um, and then they have the constraint is that you know companies, commercial entities, they have budgets. They don't necessarily have extra cash. They're under pressure to provide dividend checks um, to their shareholders because that's kind of the direction we've been going in in the industry. A lot of times they unfortunately buy back their own stock instead of using the money to drill. So, but the point is, there's a paradigm where governments, in this case, could be the U.S. government. Uh, in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea, um, they needed money. Otherwise, they were going to have to stop drilling. And so Chinese gave, China gave Russia the money in advance. They used that money to drill. And then they gave China the oil. Now, that sounds crazy, but we could actually do that here in the United States. The United States government could pay for oil that the oil industry would drill from the shale. The oil could be available in three to six months right? Depending on how much of an emergency we thought it was. Um, the United States government would then own the oil and they would have the opportunity to do different things with it. We could put it back in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to replace the barrels we're using now. We could use it if we, God forbid, we, we with the Pentagon needed fuel for its own operations. Uh, that oil could be processed at refineries uh, and the products could go to the Pentagon. Um, or we could sell the oil to our allies. If Germany was short oil because they got cut off by the Russians, then this extra US oil could be sent to Europe. 
So it's a really interesting plan. Um, I wish that everybody would stop saying their partisan soundbite and work on this plan, because I've been told by the chairman of multiple oil companies from the United States that they're on board with this plan, this plan could work. And then when you get into the details, everybody goes back down their favorite cable TV narrative show, and they're not doing the hard work of figuring out exactly how you would structure the pricing. It's been done all around the world. Angola's done it, Nigeria's done it, many countries have done it. It could be done well here by the US Treasury Department together with the oil, you know, major producing oil companies. We could use a tender system like we use for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So it's highly doable. And we now know from COVID that we really could, you know, target the materials that the oil industry needs to do more. We could allocate it to them because we've done that for you know, vaccination production. So we know how to do that. So Ronald, there's many things we could do. And I hope I've made you a convert. Thank you. Let's go next to um, Georgiou Toshef, uh, who's um, works for the Representative Matthew Bradford in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Hi, good afternoon. Can you hear me okay? I can. We can. Uh, my name is Georgi Toshev. Um, I'm your average budget analyst for a Committee on Appropriations uh, for the state of Pennsylvania. My question relates on um, the end sale in terms of gasoline. So I've done some tracking, and it's not only myself that's done it. Uh, if we track crude oil prices to price at the pump, uh, they normally move in a similar direction. Um, that has not necessarily been the case uh, since the beginning of the conflict, uh, uh, the, uh, basically since Russia invaded Ukraine. My question is, is there a possibility that we would actually hold, whether it's um, you know, gas stations, whether it's businesses that basically sell uh, gas to the general public and uh, responsible for lack of movement in those prices, because it is, I'm of the opinion that in, there's a significant uh, 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 sort of a, uh, efforts to gain uh, profits rather than relieve the price at the pump. So those prices are almost artificially held above a certain level. So I was looking to get your opinion in terms of what can I mean, you know, traditionally those should be market prices with a number of variables that are included as how they're set, but it doesn't seem to be that, that way. So Georgia, you will be interested to know that I sat for three years on a panel in California on this very topic. So the crude oil feedstock price to refineries is like you say, a major determinant on what influences the price of gasoline. But, you know, you can have local variables. And, and as I mentioned, you know, the uh, when people tank up ahead of a hurricane or whatever, you know, you get outages. So we're seeing some outages in different places in the United States today because people are afraid. So they're running their tank high and that holds the price up. But that doesn't mean that some particular set of station owners um, couldn't be in a particular locale price gouging. And um, 
I think the best way to look at localized price gouging is to look at average gasoline prices um, statewide or in a particular part of the state. Uh, we spent a lot of time in California looking at it, and we concluded that there was some problem in California, which policymakers decided not to take my advice for how to fix it, but that was their choice, and they still have the problem. But um, there are things that could be done. My opinion is it's a matter for your local uh, uh, justice department, honestly. Uh, that's, I think, where uh, the investigation needs to go, and they probably need some people who would help them that would, like you're doing, you know, look at a survey and see if there are particular owners um, that are, are overcharging. And then one would also look at whether those owners have ever met with each other, because, um, of course, that would be against the law. So I think there are things that can be done. I think it kind of belongs to the Justice Department. I think the Biden administration has the Justice Department looking at it. The Justice Department in California decided not to prosecute the companies, but I could tell you sitting on a panel for three years, there were some very dicey things that got done to keep that market up in California where companies literally moved gasoline out of the state to hold the price up. So. Um, you know, it, it takes a full investigation, uh, but I think that the place that that investigation belongs is not in the political domain, but uh, in our legal domain. Thank you. I'm going to take a written question from uh, Mayor Pro Temp Carol Moore, um, mayor in Laguna Woods, California. We're down 30% in our reserves. Oil for vehicles, only one use, although largest, but oil products used in many products such as plastics, paint, etc., to end use dramatically is not a clear and sustainable policy. What can be done to make certain reduction um, sensible? Well, listen, you know, you're in California. There's no question the larger amount of vehicles we have that run on electricity, the better off we're going to be. And, you know, you can say, well, but we don't have a lot of, uh, you know, we have to generate that electricity. And then people say, well, some of what we're using coal, or we're using this, we're using that. The point is we generate electricity in this country without using oil. We use nuclear, we use, we use hydro, we use many different things to generate that electricity. And we have a lot of natural gas and we have a lot of renewables that are untapped, renewable resource that's untapped. California is pursuing that. So clearly we want to accelerate electrification of the vehicle fleet. And we also want to try to get fleet trucks and delivery trucks um, electric. So California, your ARB is doing the right thing. You know, having the ride hailing companies have to go to electric. That's a good thing. Meaning that the delivery vehicles for Amazon or other e-commerce companies have to go electric. That's a good idea, right? So, you know, the challenge we have in today's crisis with the war is that it's hard to do those things, as you know, from sitting in California, it's hard to do those things quickly. So now we have a shortage of new cars because we don't have enough chips. And then we're not gonna, we're the same thing with electric cars. So I, Actually, literally, my husband called our dealership uh, last week because we saw that the electric version of a car we wanted was coming out in 2022. And they told us they would put us on the waiting list 
for 2024. So um, I may put myself on that waiting list or I might shop some other brand of car and hopes to find one. But I know from other friends of mine who are wealthier than I am that the waiting list for Tesla is also over a year. So, you know, there's only so fast we can go, uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't go that way because the year will come around very, very fast and it'll turn out that we're probably not out of the problem uh, a year from now. Even if hopefully the war is resolved a year from now, you know, this problem of the boom bust cycle in oil, we're not gonna get out of quickly and we need to try to transition as fast as possible to other technologies. But to that point, Amy, how are we doing in setting up electrical charging stations across the U.S.? Well, California's better because um, the states put a lot of emphasis on that. Um, you know, we're, we're lagging what I think makes people feel comfortable. If you were really going to drive electric across the entire United States, you might have some difficulty. I mean, Tesla claims that you have the app and you can make it, but it's a little harder than it seems. Um, and, and we haven't solved one. I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, the infrastructure bill had more charging, public charging stations, and you're seeing some states being proactive. And even some of the oil companies are investing in charging station companies. Um, the problem really becomes, um, frankly, for places where people live in apartment buildings. Because I can tell you as an electric car owner, that if you're plugging into your house, really, truly, people misunderstand how much they actually drive. Um, you only drive probably 30 miles a, a week if you're not commuting, like if you're just doing local driving and you're not using your car to go back and forth to work. The average American commutes 30 miles each way. So that might be a little more of a hassle. But if you actually thought about it, 30 miles each way, that's 60 miles. A, a, a good electric car has got 200 miles to the charge. I mean, that's good enough to go back and forth to work. Then you're going to come home and plug it into your garage. When you get up in the morning, it's fully charged. So you don't even really need charging stations if you're willing to charge at home. And I live that way. And I will tell you, my husband, always, I was the one with the electric car. He always took my car. He's like, taking your car because it's charged. And then we were like people with a cell phone, right? Neither of us would want to take the gasoline car because that would mean that person would have to go to the gasoline station and pay for gasoline. So, and even though it was in our electricity bills, so we're obviously paying for the fuel, it had a different psychological feel. So we would game to stick the person with the gasoline car so they'd be the one who have to stop at a gasoline station. So everybody used this electric car unless they were going way farther than the car's range. Great. I'm going to go next to Rich Mallory, uh, who has raised hand uh, for the Maryland Energy Administration. And unmute yourself. Hopefully you can do it. There we go. Thank you, Harina. Uh, uh, and thank you, Amy, for taking my question. Uh, if Colonial Pipeline had been a publicly traded company, if there'd been a more diverse group of smart money involved, do you think they would have been hacked? Um. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're like the jugular. If you, were, if you were a state actor, I'm not going to accuse any particular country. If you were a state actor and you wanted to make the point to the U.S. government that you could make the president very uncomfortable, right, for, for strategic negotiating, whatever your geopolitical reason, um, Colonial is a great target. 
So, I mean, the different things that Colonial did wrong, I mentioned the thing about their VPN system. And by the way, if you quit Colonial and, dis and left, they didn't bother to shut down your VPN account. So that means that every former employer was a risk to the company because all those accounts were just floating around unused. But going beyond that, um, they had all kinds of firewall problems because they actually automated the entire pipeline with all these sensors. And then it was really very high tech because they could eliminate all their employees and save a lot of money and make more money for the management by you know, eliminating all the people who did things clerically because they could do everything by computer. The sensors would tell you how much gasoline was delivered in a particular place. And then it would send that data back to the business office. And then that would automatically make a invoice that would go to the customer. Do you know what the problem was with that, Rich? The problem with that was that if that hack had been worse, they could have gone, that, that same hack could have traveled into all the customers of Colonial Pipeline. That means it would have gone into military installations. It could have gone all through Washington, right? It could have hacked everybody's distribution company. So, you know, it was a very, if airports, it was a very dangerous hack. And it really raised the question about whether or not it's okay for private infrastructure to not be regulated in how it manages its cyber preparedness. And we're still fooling around with that topic on, on Capitol Hill. There've been more bills passed uh, in the last week or two about um, the requirement of reporting. If you have a breach to your, say you just had a breach to your business office and you were colonial, uh, you felt you didn't have to report that to CISA, but you know actually that turned out to be a material thing for the U.S. military that you had that breach. So now we're changing the rules and we're making it much more tight that um, you have to report payments of ransomware and you have to report breaches. And you know what's tracked is met, what's measured is fixed. So my feeling is if I have to report it then it means I have to monitor it. And if I have to monitor it, I'm less apt to be hacked because I'm monitoring. So I think those regulations are a good thing and hopefully will help. Um, so I'm gonna go next to Brandon um, Bowser who wrote his question, but also raised his hand and it's on, I think it's on cyber attacks. So Brandon, why don't you um, uh, ask your question and identify yourself, please. Uh, sure. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I also work with Rich at the Maryland Energy Administration. I'm our agency's energy resilience program manager. Um, so I offer a few incentives that help grow microgrids throughout the state of Maryland. And so, yeah, sort of pulling on the, the theme that Rich started with, with the Colonial Pipeline, um, you mentioned early in the call that cyber attack threats are on the rise, obviously, with the geopolitical situation. That being the case, and with the increasing prevalence of distri uh, distributed energy resources coming online on our grid, um, that makes more entry points for these bad actors, of course, to get in and start attacking things. I mean, I'm, I'm really thinking about those, those real critical infrastructures uh, like hospitals, medical facilities, water treatment plants. Um, what, what is the federal government doing really to take a look at ramping up any security protocols, recommendations, or regulations that can really help prepare us for these types of threats? Because more entry points obviously increases the severity of the attack that could be carried out. Correct. So, so you have 
I mean, there's the flip side to that. There's the more entry points, right? And, you know, Colonial was instructive on that. But there's also the um, practice. So if you segment all your entry points, then you're less apt to have it go all the way through a system. So another thing Colonial did wrong is that the way their IT work was along the entire pipeline through all those different states, they had no IT and firewall segments. It was just all one program, right? So that's a problem because they couldn't shut down one section and analyze it, and they couldn't find the hack in one place and only shut down that place. And also they couldn't operate anything manually, so that's also a problem. So just mentioning all those problems. But you know, you raise a very important question, which is that you have all these different ways that uh, you know hostile actors uh, can enter the system. So a couple of things, you know, you're a resilience officer, so maybe I'm preaching to the choir here. But the most important thing, actually, I mean, you know, we want to do monitoring and we want to do all segmentation and we want to do all these things to try to prevent an attack, but you know, law of averages, some attacks are going to get through. So the other thing we want to concentrate on is restoration and recovery. So one of the things, again, we learned by accident is that the uh, shipping container ship company, uh, Moller Maersk, um, had a major attack on itself in 2017. And their entire, I kind of forget the name of it, their entire a software management system for the entire company, you know, hundreds of countries, you know, hundreds of locations in many multiple countries uh, went down, their whole system went down. And um, it happens that on the day that everything went down and they lost all their data, there was a unit that was operating in Nigeria and Nigeria had a blackout that same day because they had bad power, you know, stability. And the systems in Nigeria for Maersk were shut off from the internet. And none of the data was compromised because it was turned off. It was disconnected from the internet. It was on devices that were literally off. So that made people realize that one of the things that operators need to do is they need to have um, regularly updated data, real-time data for their operations that is on a device or a storage platform that is not connected to the internet so that the restoration process can be faster. And also you don't have to pay the ransomware. So that was a lesson uh, which the oil industry now does. I know a lot of the people in the oil and gas industry now, they have separate mainframes um, that, are, that are off, that store the data and they turn them on briefly to, to load back up the data and then they turn it off again, right? So, um, so that's one process that one has to think about. And, you know, I mean, the federal government, unfortunately, can't be everywhere. And that does mean it, it falls to state and local agencies like your own. And if you think about it, because I'm sure there's someone in Maryland who's done this, and this has not been instituted at the federal level, but it's something we could think about. So I mentioned the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, we do have an emergency fuel system where 
uh, there's a communication, uh, like a, a, a schematic. It's been used in the past where uh, state officials make assessments about fuel shortages. I mean, I've seen that myself when I lived in Texas. Of course, we had all the hurricanes where suddenly there was no fuel and people couldn't evacuate, right? So we have these, um, and I was on a panel uh, for the US Department of Energy for a year where we studied the emergency fuel system, which is a combination of energy companies that provide the fuel, you know, distributors and refiners, um, the state agencies that would be assisting people if there was a, a fuel emergency, and the US Department of Energy, who we're the uh, director of the Energy Information Administration is the coordinator. And the idea is to, you know, like we did, you know, during COVID or other times, we look at uh, the data nationally and for a particular state, we can move fuel from one state to another. We can have refiners address outages by inventory. We can move things by truck. There are all kinds of things we do when we're in an emergency fuel situation. And my feeling is we could have a similar system for cyber training and information, the way we do these drills for fuel emergencies. We could also have something like that set up for energy and cyber. Um, and we do not have that yet. Um, so that would be something I think that the states and the federal government could look at, which is how do we do training and coordination for emergency procedures? Thank you. I'm going to take the next question from um, Erica Blyther, who is the Petroleum Administrator for uh, LA, um, City of Los Angeles and California. There's been a large focus on vehicles and fuel. Are there also plans for jets and air travel to reduce fuel demand? So jets is very hard. Um, you have some companies, United in, in particular, has been very forward-looking in trying to come up with biofuel that would meet the specific, the unbelievably strict and tight and important specifications for jet engines, because of course there can't, it has, it can't be a, a, a molecule off spec or, you know, we have all these people up in the air. So, um, so people are working on that. Companies are working on that. Um, there's R and D money from the federal level that looks at that. Some people have suggested that maybe we could get to the point where we could use hydrogen uh, in planes. Um, you have some people experimenting with very small planes running on solar electricity. Um, that seems a little harder to do at a large scale, but um, it's a harder puzzle than doing on the ground vehicles. And that's why it's going probably going to be the last place um, that we tackle. And, you know, speaking from LA, you know, I mean, I was out there, it would be great to have a high speed rail between San Francisco and LA, and then we wouldn't need to use all those planes uh, for people who just don't have the time to drive or don't have the, the uh, uh, health to drive. Um, you know, for years, for years, I frustratingly drove back and forth from Houston to Dallas another fantastic route that could be easily serviced by high-speed rail. 
obviously on the East Coast, it would be fantastic if we had high-speed rail. Um, and I just, you know, we don't have the political will to spend the money on that because it would take all new rail. I mean, we had to actually build new tracks because, you know, the tracks we have between the East Coast, you know, just couldn't do it. And, you know, you have entrenched players like Southwest Airlines, an important company in Texas, you know, tried to scotch the high-speed rail. And, you know, California story, I, as you know, I'm sure well from LA was a very complex story for why it got funded and then not built. Thank you. I'm going to go next uh, to um, Utah State Representative Ken Ivory, who has raised his hand. And if you can unmute yourself. Here we go. There we Thank, go. You. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I wanted to follow up on the uh, New York Times article from last week that uh, talked about the Defense Production Act. Um, mentioned 46 some odd minerals that uh, we import at least half. And, and wondering if you could comment on what the use of the Defense Production Act would do to get us to some level of independence on these 46 different minerals. And then the article also mentioned that uh, the administration would look at further potential uses of the Defense Production Act in relation to the energy sector. Wonder if you could comment and flesh that out a little bit. Well, um, we definitely need to be more independent on the metals that we need um, if we're going to, um, you know, move forward on electric vehicles. If we're going to move forward on um, some other kinds of technologies that we want to do. Um, and also just honestly, as a, as a matter of US defense, um, we have minerals where we either don't have them, rare earth minerals where we don't have them and they're needed for the US military to operate. For example, uh, night, night vision glasses, we don't have the uh, materials being produced here in the United States, we're importing them actually from China. So that seems like a problem. Um, but, but we also don't have the processing here. So we definitely need to hasten manufacturing. Um, we've all learned with COVID that having one supplier country for something is unwise. Now we're doubly learning that um, with the crisis with Russia. And, and it goes across so many different things because now we're learning that the key ingredients to make fertilizer for food um, came from either Russia or the Ukraine or Belarus. And now there are some parts of the world where people are concerned there might be food shortages. I don't think we'll see that here in the United States, but the farm community is gonna to have to pay a lot more for their inputs uh, than in the past because of the crisis in Europe. And I mean, the list of things that we we offshored is so large. It's almost hard to like wrap one's brain around it. Um, and we're, I think the reality is we're not going to be able to be self-sufficient in everything. I think I'm not making an extreme statement when I say that, um, Whereas the previous administration might have poo-pooed the fact that we don't need these alliance systems. When you look at the, all the different material we need, both to protect our own national security 
and to manufacture the things we need to make sure that Americans have the food they need safely, have the equipment to have automobiles and, and so forth. Now that we can see all that, then you can understand that we're just not gonna be able to manufacture all of that in the United States. We also need to tap our alliance system. Um, and so um, I, I just think it's important. And then we also, uh, corporations, I think learning the hard way that um, having risky places in your supply chain um, might be cheaper in the short run, but could be very damaging to their operations in the long run. So I think you'll see the private sector make its own adjustments. Thank you. I'm going to go next to Andrew Epstein, who uh, wrote his question, also raised hands. So why don't you just ask it yourself? Hi, sorry. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Hi, good to be with you. Thank you for for all your expertise and knowledge. I, I am Andrew Epstein. I'm Chief of Staff to Assemblymember Gallagher in New York State. And we're gathered here today a day after the IPCC, reflecting the overwhelming consensus of hundreds of scientists around the world, told us that we have 30 months, right? The distance between October 2019 and now is the same distance that we have into the future to start turning around the trajectory of global emissions if we are going to have a prayer of having a livable planet for us for our kids, for our grandkids. It's dire and it's happening right now. And I totally recognize the context of the Ukraine conflict and the very real pain Americans are feeling at the pump. But I just feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to reflect a little bit on how releasing oil from the strategic reserve, facilitating increased domestic production, all of these things we've been discussing today, how that comports with the incredibly clear message that the global scientific community is telling us right now about the livability of our planet. So would love to hear some thoughts on this. Okay, Andrew, can you tell me, how did you get to work today? I took a bus. Okay, and what did that bus use for fuel? Unfor unfortunately, that I believe they use, quote, clean, clean gas. Or, I'm in New York City, right? They advertise some form they of- use, they, use, they probably use natural gas, right? Right, right, so-called, yeah. Okay, so, so here's the problem, right? First of all, the Biden administration is not producing extra oil and making extra emissions. We are replacing Russian oil and Russian emissions. And the Russian oil and gas is the most methane intensive in the world. So to the extent that we replace a barrel produced in Russia with a barrel produced almost anywhere else in the world, we're better off from a climate perspective. Is that what the IPCC has to say about it? That is the that is absolutely a scientific fact. If you do not believe what I am saying, you can email me. My email sure. is tufts, and I will send you the data. Sure, I would love to see where in the IPCC it says world, that a barrel of American Bank, gas it's is World better Bank than a barrel data. It's World Bank data, right? It's World Bank and and uh, uh, other data sources, International Energy Agency data that shows that the Russian production is the most carbon intensive in the world. That's a fact. It's just a fact. Now, I understand how you feel. I feel the same way. I mean, I was just telling Arena before I came on the call, I actually changed jobs so that I could work 100% of my time on the climate crisis. You heard my title. I am the director, my managing director of the Climate Policy Lab my lab spends 
every minute of every day trying to help countries develop decarbonization strategies that will work without putting people out of work. That's what we do, right? We green industrialization is what we call, right? But that said, with all due respect, are you gonna not, I mean, there are just people who have to go to work. They can't work from home. And they have a car or a vehicle that runs on fuel. And I mean, they can't afford an electric car. And even if they could, there isn't one available to buy. And by the way, New York State, right? Why don't you call up Maine and ask them why they won't let there be a wire to bring clean hydroelectric power to New York City so that you don't have to use natural gas for your bus, right? Everybody has an ax to grind. Maine doesn't want to wire in their forest land. Other people don't like hydro because it, you know, it affected some other ecological system, right? You know, energy requires infrastructure. Infrastructure disrupts somebody's backyard, disrupts some animal, disrupts something. So we have to make decisions. And I agree with you, right? Climate change should be the top priority. I do that, made that commitment in my own daily life. That's all I work on. 100% of the time, except when people call me up because I know a lot about oil and gas and say, we're in a national emergency. I mean, honestly, if we were at war, right? I mean, I, I hate to speak like this because I only have five minutes left. I watched the international news with great intensity because even though I try to work 99% on climate change, you know, I have a background in looking at security. And last time I looked, Vladimir Putin made a speech that explained to our country that he's got nuclear submarines off the east coast of the United States pointing at us. And right now, in this 10 minutes, every piece of military equipment that operates in the world, from the United States military to everybody else, operates on liquid fuel, i.e. some form of oil. That's just the reality of the way there is. Maybe there's a drone out there that operates on electricity, you know, or hydrogen. Everything else is, is oil. And we cannot be caught in a situation where we can't defend ourselves as a nation because there's not enough oil. And it happened. Part of the reason that we stopped having electric cars in 1910, Andrew, literally, is because we had to move all that metal into weaponry. And then Europe didn't have railroads and the Germans did. Contro Germany controlled all the railroads. So we had to get Ford Motor Company and other companies to make trucks that could run on liquid fuel so that we could move men and people around so that we didn't lose the war. And that's just the reality of where we are. We're in a horribly dangerous time, not only because of climate change, but because there is this small percentage chance that we could have a nuclear war. And the president has to deal with that every morning he wakes up. He has to, his best and top goal, I'm afraid, 
is to make sure we don't have a nuclear exchange with Russia. That's the first thing on his mind. And maybe the second thing on his mind is climate change. But the first thing in his mind is to make sure we don't have nuclear war. All right, so we have three minutes left. I'm gonna take the last question um, from Matthew. I'm not gonna be able to pronounce his name properly. Kazmerzak, um, who is a government and legislative affairs in San Jose. What should local government agencies be doing to ensure stability and resilience for its residents given the uncertainty of energy supplies um, and that this isn't an issue that local government have any control over? So what about ensuring stability for local budgets at the micro and macro level? Oh my God, I would hate to be a city official doing the fuel budget today. You are definitely gonna have to allocate more money for fuel. And that's very depressing because my daughter used to work for the city of San Jose. And I know you have a lot of really worthwhile services for people. That'd be horrible if you had to cut them just because fuel costs are gonna go up. So, you know, unfortunately, I mean, there's not much I can tell you. Um, to the extent that you have urban, you know, city vehicles and, and you can move those to alternative energy. I think, I still think you're gonna do better with electricity than you're gonna do with uh, oil over time. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it just is what it is. I mean, your best bet is efficiency. So if there's money that you could spend to replace equipment, to make the current equipment, whether that's your vehicle fleet or your, your um, uh, power generation fleet or your, your um, buildings, more energy efficient, that's gonna be money well spent. Um, it not only lowers emissions, but it means that over time your energy bill will go down. Um, and maybe that's an investment to make because there's really, it's going to be hard to avoid. Well, with that, Amy Myers Jaffe, thank you very much. I apologize for not being able to get to all the questions and comments uh, in the Q&A box. Um, we obviously have run out of time, but we do appreciate your being with us and for your good questions. Um, we will send out a link to this uh, video in the transcript um, and we'll, we'll, uh, circle back to you, Amy, for anything else you want us to include, some of the reports you've mentioned and that you're, some of the work that you're doing at your lab. Uh, and you can follow Amy on Twitter at Amy Jaffe Energy. You, you might need to change your Twitter handle to climate change. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, well, energy, energy, you know, transitioning our energy system is a climate change activity. So there you go. Yeah. And you can also follow state and local officials at CFR underscore local. Um, so we hope that you'll do, a, do that. Please email us with any um, suggestions to state and local at CFR.org. And as always, uh, go to CFR.org, foreignaffairs.com, and thinkglobalhealth.org for more expertise. So again, Amy Myers-Jaffe, thank you very much. And to all of you, we hope you stay safe and well. And uh, we look forward to continuing our conversations. For more event audio, subscribe on iTunes or visit us at CFR.org.